Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Kenneth Lonergan's 2011 movie Margaret. This little-known drama stars Anna Paquin as a New York teenager who witnesses a horrifying traffic accident, sending her life into turmoil. Written and directed by Lonergan and featuring a fantastic supporting cast including Matt Damon, Kieran Culkin, Mark Ruffalo and succession actress J. Smith Cameron, it's a fascinating movie with a storied production history. And this is a Patreon request from Malgor Zata as a birthday present for Naaman, whose birthday was t- November 22nd. So thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. Um, and I'm really glad you requested this movie because I hadn't seen it and I actually hadn't even heard of this movie, which isn't unusual. This film did not get a wide release. We will be going into how this film was effectively buried despite its all-star cast. But it's a really, it's just a really interesting, good film. And if you're one of the kind of listeners who doesn't watch the movie before or is kind of on the fence about whether to watch before listening to the episode, obviously we'll kind of have some spoiler-free discussion in the first part of the episode. But also if you're just doing like a quick Wikipedia of Margaret, this is like a truly impressive example of when review aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic mean absolutely nothing because they're like, oh, it's got like 61% or whatever. And it's like, okay, I mean, so that basically just means some people were like, this movie's really long and boring and other people thought it was a masterpiece. I thought it was really impressive. It's a fascinating, very interesting, unusual drama, which we will be now going into in depth, Morgan. Yes. So I saw this movie when it came out. This would have been my first encounter with Kenneth Lonergan's work. Um, He started out his career as a playwright in the 90s. He's written many, many plays, many of which have been on Broadway. I think the one that he's probably best known for is This Is Our Youth, which I haven't seen because it hasn't been put on in New York in a while. But I have seen uh, Lobby Hero and The Waverly Gallery, which both have been on Broadway in the past couple of years. But this came out in 2011, and I remember reading about it, and I didn't know who he was, but like the story around the sort of history of this film was definitely in the movie news at the time. And basically, the film was shot in 2005, and it wound up in this endless, torturous post-production slog where the executives at Fox Searchlight, which produced the film, and the producer, Gary Gilbert, wanted the film to be shorter than Lonergan did. And I think it was in the contract that it had to be two and a half hours long. And his preferred cut was like three hours and 10 minutes long-ish. I mean, he literally personally described it as an epic. And that is not an easily marketable concept for a real life drama about emotions and psychology starring a teenage girl who is not wielding a sword. So, Yes. But obviously they would have like had the script. I mean, it's this, they had to have known what they were getting into to a certain extent. And it just went, it went on for years and years and years. And um, eventually like Martin Scorsese, who is a pretty close friend of Lonergan's, was kind of a mentor of his, wound up like working on a cut of his own. Like he put a lot of time into it and he wound up finishing one that was like two hours and 40 minutes long, I believe. So it was just over the limit. And everybody agreed that it was fine. Searchlight and Lonergan both were like, great. And the producer, Gary Gilbert, was like, no, this is unacceptable. It has to be two hours and 30 minutes. And then they were like stalled out again. I mean, this thing just, it was just endless. And so finally it gets released in 2011. And it was released at the Cinema Village Theater in New York, which is, it has to be the smallest multi-screen theater in New York City. It's a couple blocks south of Union Square. And normally they'll show, like, tiny, tiny, tiny indie movies that you've never heard of. Like, even I have not heard of the movies that are screening at this place. Or independent films that have already finished their runs at other movie theaters will then maybe play for a little while at this theater. It is minuscule. This I mean, so, so small. And it only opened there and I believe one theater in Los Angeles. It was... Like, they dumped it. And this was, like, a movie starring the main character of the first X-Men film and written and directed by an Oscar winner, so... (laughs) Well, he had not won an Oscar at that time. Okay. He'd been nominated for two for You Can Count On Me. (laughs) Yeah. But, uh, I remember 
sort of finding it impressive but not loving it. And um, it was really long. And the main thing I remembered about it, you know, nine years later, was how completely surreal watching it was because the fashion was all out of date because it had been shot six years before, but it wasn't yet a period piece because six years isn't really that long. But, like, all the clothes they were wearing at this high school were, like, exactly the clothes that people had worn at my high school. And it was, like, everything looked completely different already, but it was a new movie. It wasn't like I was watching something from 10 years ago from Netflix or something, right? And it was just, it was very, very weird as a, movie-going experience. I've never experienced anything like it because this never happens. And watching the movie again was really interesting because I didn't remember all the details of the plot super well, but as I was watching it, I was like, this doesn't feel substantially different to me. Like, there were a couple scenes that had changed, which we'll discuss. And at the back of my brain during those scenes, something was sort of going off, like, oh, I think this is different. But most of what was changed was just that the scenes that were in the movie in both cuts... Like, they just got longer in the extended cut, which is the one that he obviously preferred and is the one that you should watch if you decide to watch this movie. And there's just more room for the characters to sort of breathe and the movie flows a lot better. And I, again, like, liked but didn't love it the first time. And watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece. And I think it is... I think my reaction was because the way that it's cut together is just a lot more seamless in yeah. the current iteration. And it's, I, the impression I get is that it's something that's become, earned like a cult following among sort of cinephiles. <laughs> because when you look it up, like we are going to have some quotes in here, but there's like from like the film website, Bright Wall Dark Room just did like a whole issue that was all about Margaret with like interviews with people and stuff. But it's kind of all these film critics kind of discovering and rediscovering how interesting the film is. And I did actually kind of look up like a blog post that was sort of tracking the differences between the two cuts. And like Morgan said, there were like a couple of scenes that were just completely removed and then put back in his director's cut. But one thing that really stuck out to me is because it was something I noticed while watching is that this movie has a lot of scenes where uh, there's dialogue that kind of talks over each other. So not just the main characters talking over each other, but like there's this scene in a cafe towards the beginning where the main characters are sitting having a conversation, but most of the dialogue you hear is like other random extras that are in the foreground, kind of kind of as if you are the camera and you're like in the cafe. So obviously you can't hear the conversation that's happening further away. And it's just one of these elements that makes the film really immersive. And to me, it definitely felt like one of those sort of like, this is what it's like to live in New York slash a big city, but like very specifically New York. Yeah. I mean, this is such a great New York movie, specifically an Upper West Side movie. She goes to Brooklyn for one scene, but it basically all takes place within a pretty narrow I mean, her mom is an off, her Side. mom is an off-Broadway actor and everyone's like a slightly pretentious liberal and she goes to this school with like lots of very it's not like a sort of a posh gossip gossip girl school, it's like a school full of people who are like willing to have lots of intellectual debates with each other and she's in like theater and is very intense about it, but like really hates theatre because her mum's a theatre actress and all that stuff. And it's also like very much a post 9-11 movie, which is very explicit. Yeah, that was another thing that sort of struck me watching it with a little bit more distance. I mean, I would have been 21 when I saw this and I think I was probably a little bit too close to the age of the main character to like appreciate it sort of fully at that time. And obviously now I'm older But also, I feel like the six-year gap between the shooting and the initial release was, like, the worst amount of time for that movie to sort of be percolating in terms of when it got released. Because I think that this is such a movie about America during the Iraq war period. And obviously 9-11 too, is like a huge sort of overshadowing thing in this movie because it's taking place in New York specifically and it gets referenced multiple times in the film. But we'll get into the actual plot of the movie shortly, but like this is basically a moral problem film. It's very, very philosophical, not in a like pretentious way. People aren't like having conversations about like philosophical debates, but it is about grappling with moral questions. And it's not like it's an allegory for the war in Iraq or anything, but 
that is so the like cultural water the movie is swimming in, in a way that, you know, 15 years later, it's so clear that that's the case in a way that made the movie feel really profound to me. But six years after that, I feel like I, I mean, maybe some people were picking up on that, but I like, I wouldn't have had the distance to sort of grasp that yet. And also kind of the depiction of teenagers, like when you're watching it as like an actual full adult, (laughs) you're just like, this is hilarious. And it really reminded me a lot of Lady Bird in that regard. Yes. I mean, I think totally very different. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But another, both great teen movies for sure. But also I would say like, I think if it had come out in 2005, obviously this wasn't ever going to be a blockbuster, but I feel like the cultural sort of commentary he's doing, I suspect would have resonated more, even if only with critics, because it was so directly commenting on stuff that was going on. But again, like the weird lag time, I think really, really underserved this film. Which we should say is now absolutely regarded as one of the best movies of the last decade. Like all the sort of best of the decade lists that were compiled at the end of last year, this was showing up on most of them. So it's now been really rehabilitated, at least critically, but obviously, like, no one has seen it if you're not <laughs> a big movie person, which to Kenneth Lonergan clearly was. And also, like, if, I, very if I'd seen this on a best of the 21st century list, I wouldn't have been like, wow, I'm going to watch this. <laughs> but I'm glad I have, because it was great and really interesting. Should we step back and talk a bit about Lonergan before we dive into the plot details of this film? Yeah, sure. Because I think he's a pretty fascinating figure. Um, I love his work. He's made three movies that he's written and directed. He worked on a couple screenplays before he started directing himself. He wrote Analyze This in the 90s. Very funny. Um, which is not what you associate with Kenneth Lonergan now. But um, his mother and his stepfather were both um, psychoanalysts. So that kind of explains that. And he also contributed to the screenplay for Scorsese's film Gangs of New York, which is also funny because that movie is garbage. <laughs> so awful. But the three movies he's made, which are You Can Count On Me, which came out like 20 years ago, um, and is, I've only seen it once. I would really like to see it again, but it's incredible. It is so good. And then this, and then Manchester by the Sea, which is my favorite of his films. It's the best Massachusetts movies, movie ever made. So I, did of course, Did we do a whole podcast native. on that? Or did we just include it in one of our film festival segments? I think it was just film festival because we saw it at the London film yeah. festival in Because that film was incredible. It's a really intense, subdued drama about grief. Regrettably, it stars Casey Affleck, which makes this makes me feel slightly distasteful towards that film now. But it, it was really brilliant when I watched it. And it kind of co-stars Michelle Williams, who, of course, is tremendous, and Cal Chandler and Lucas Hedges in one of the many Lucas Hedges breakout roles, because he just did like 50 movies at once. <laughs> yes, that is definitely his best performance on film still, I would say. I think I've seen most of what he's done. And he is, that's another great teenager character from Kenneth Lonergan. Obviously, the Casey Affleck situation is... Um, and I would completely understand anyone not wanting to watch the movie for that reason. But I thought the sort of year after that movie came out, I had a number of kind of funny conversations with people who had not seen it in theaters because they didn't want to support it financially, which again, obviously, I understand. And then had wound up seeing it on like a plane or you know, on Netflix or wherever it had shown up on streaming. And they were all like, God damn it, it's so great. And I was like, I know. (laughs) Unfortunately, I mean, the really frustrating thing is him getting hired after that. Right. And obviously, also, that was like a year before the Me Too stuff, which doesn't mean that it wasn't being discussed, of course, but the cultural conversation absolutely radically shifted the year after in terms of the Oscar situation. But uh, I feel like for me, in terms of watching movies with people who have, you know, had allegations or whatnot I think I was vaguely aware of that when I saw it the first time but not all the details and um I generally find it you know in my brain I don't tend to have a lot of trouble like re-watching the stuff I've seen before I knew <laughs> the bad thing about someone and it's like new stuff I can't really do so man- like I had such a strong emotional response to Manchester by the Sea that the movie remains pretty untainted to me even though I obviously do not like Casey Affleck But just in terms of the writing, like the writing of that film is bananas. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable how precise the characterization is in this film. 
just the idea of like Kenneth Lonergan sitting down and like I read this interview with him where he was just talking about how he just had this perfect conception of what Lisa Cohen was going to be like the main character and I'm like wow like that is not something you usually hear about like a real life drama film and it's like it is such a real character who just feels so fully fleshed out and has this incredibly complex life and all these interesting like relationships and just the introduction to the film like the first scenes are brilliant because it's so kind of funny like the first couple of scenes are so funny and you get this wonderful portrait of this simultaneously mature and very childish because she's 17 years old like teenager who's like going to school and being like a little bit inappropriately flirty with her teacher Matt Damon and like hanging out with her pals her big quest is she wants to buy a cowboy hat so she can wear a cowboy hat when she goes horse riding and then she like ends up witnessing this incredibly horrible accident where someone dies and that's like the introduction of the film and it sets off this massive kind of moral dilemma for her and this like traumatic emotional breakdown and it's just such a bizarrely unique real life story and i'm just kind of like how do you, how does your brain consider this how do you how do you make up such good writing sir <laughs> like a just foolish little brain of mine <laughs> i can't think of anyone else in hollywood now who is known so primarily as a writer except maybe aaron sorkin who is less good which is hilarious because obviously aaron sorkin is writing like cartoon characters compared to this Yes, but like, it's just very, like, Hollywood does not respect screenwriters, obviously, we all know this. And Lonergan has sort of protected himself, I think, by directing as well, because his writing doesn't get mangled by other people. And he's also a very good director. Like, Margaret is an extremely well-directed movie, and so is Manchester by the Sea, which I don't think was sort of appropriately appreciated for that when it came out because the writing was so incredible that that kind of was what everyone was talking about. But um, like this and Manchester by the sea are visually extremely different because the films require different visual language. Right. So it's not like he has no facility as a director. Clearly he's very good at that too, but he himself will say that like writing is obviously the main thing that he does and is good at. And he also wrote the screenplays for um, an ITV adaptation of Howard's End a few years ago that I think aired on Stars in America that was absolutely extraordinary. It was even better than the Merchant Ivory film, in my opinion. And it's just so uncommon for someone to sort of become that well-known for something that Hollywood doesn't have any interest in. You know, reading interviews with him is really interesting because he obviously feels so incredibly strongly about like what makes good writing. But there was a great interview with him on Bright Wall Dark Room couple weeks ago about you can count on me which had its 20th anniversary and um it spoils the movie so if you want to watch that film i wouldn't necessarily recommend reading it right away but i found it really fascinating and he talks about writing quite a bit in that interview in a way that was really interesting to me and he goes in this like long tangent about how much he detests people in movies basically like saying exactly what they're feeling because people very rarely do that in real life and um I, there's a sort of excerpt that I'll read um, that I thought was very illuminating. He says, if you show the kids crying in this sort of hypothetical scenario, and then you have one of the kids say, I guess I was lucky to have had him around for as long as I did. I think he's talking about a, a father figure. That's a filthy line. No kid would say that. It's total <laughs> sentimental bullshit. It might be true or something they realize later, but they're not going to say that in that moment. Or if they say anything like, I never got to tell him, blah, blah, blah. That is not how people react. And everyone kind of knows that. It would just be me trying to squeeze something out of a situation that's already there anyway. All of it just to say that these things I'm supposedly so wonderful for doing is really just a matter of not gilding the lily when it's already blossomed, so to speak. You just get allergic to it because the truth is there. The truth is that there's been this terrible trend for three decades now of so many people writing in this disgusting, sentimental way, (laughs) saying what's happening too directly. I'm sad because we we never really talked. Who the fuck says that, you know? Which I thought was great. I completely agree with this philosophy. But it seems like he just has a... Like, his just internal bullshit detector is so high that he just doesn't write crap, right? It's like amazing observation skills and the ability to ignore the cliches that we've all kind of absorbed and that's how he ends up writing these movies which are fanatically realistic 
Yeah. While also being kind of dreamlike. They're they're realistic in the sense that it's kind of like the way that your brain is like filtering and interpreting the world. Which is why there's so many scenes in this movie where it's just like shots of people through windows and like airplanes. (laughs) Well, this movie I think is really different from his other work. Obviously all of them are... I mean, I think basically everything he's done is a masterpiece, which is insane. Like, that's not a track record that anyone should have. Um, I haven't seen You Can Count On Me in a while, but I remember it being incredible. And like this and Manchester and the Howard's End, like, I wouldn't change anything about basically any of them. I think his, the stage plays I've seen of his are, are less good, which is interesting since he started in theater. But like Manchester, for instance, has really short scenes. Like, there's an incredibly high number of scenes in that movie because they're so short. And the movie isn't this isn't a short movie, but it's not long like this. And it just feels like you're just going very quickly through these people's lives. It's not rushed. It's just that that's because they're not talking at length about their feelings. You don't, you're not lingering with any of them because it's, it's just these sort of like brief little tense interactions. And both of those movies, even though Manchester by the Sea is so depressing, like they're really, really funny. And you can count on me. I remember being quite funny also. And Margaret, it's not like there's no humor in it. There definitely is. Especially when there are multiple teenagers in one room together. Yes, the teens are very funny. But it's mostly not laugh out loud humor. At least I didn't feel that way. And the scenes are longer. Like he deliberately wanted them to be long so that you kind of felt like you were just in the real conversation with these people in a way that like a conversation will kind of just go on. And on. And sometimes it's a bit awkward or it like lags or is repetitive. Um, so technically this is a coming of age movie, which is a phrase that immediately turns me off any and all films. It just makes me eliminate anything I see in a film festival brochure, partly due to just pure bias, as you can tell, but also because it's often, it's like a very formulaic genre of kind of indie drama that doesn't want to admit that it's a genre. And a lot of the time um, it's, just an excuse to make a not very artistically interesting film. And this, technically speaking, is a coming-of-age film, but the trajectory it takes with the main character is extremely unusual. Like, it's definitely something you see in novels, but not so much in films, especially films that have famous people in them. (laughs) Um, And so, kind of the, the kind of three, like, crucial parts, I guess, of Lisa, the main character's development, are kind of her her sexuality, her guilt over this death that she witnessed. And also, like Morgan said, her kind of very slowly beginning to realize that other people have interior lives and kind of trying to make connections and like failing to make connections with people in very random and like volatile ways, partly because she's a teenager and partly because she's really emotionally volatile. So the precise situation around the pivotal event at the beginning of this film is that, like I said, she's kind of looking for this cowboy hat and she sees a bus driver, Mark Ruffalo, wearing a cowboy hat. So she decides that she's going to get his attention to see if she can find out where he got his hat. So she's like running after this bus and she's being kind of flirty because like she's she's like a teenager who's just figured out that people find her attractive and she just like was asked out by this boy and she's kind of maybe subconsciously got that in her mind. So she and this bus driver having this exchange and he obviously shouldn't be looking at her. Like he ought to be looking at the road. And what happens instead is that he runs a light and crashes into this woman played by Alison Janney, who loses a leg and bleeds to death on the road in Lisa's hands with this like crowd of New Yorkers watching around. And it's this incredibly horrifying scene because you don't really expect there to be like a ton of blood in a movie like this. And although they don't show like extreme horror movie gore, like they only show her kind of from the waist up, it's still like very upsetting and real. And you immediately get this you already have like the basic philosophical concept of the film there which is that you know the uncertainty of like the memory of what happened there like did he run a lead light did he run a green light you know there's already kind of investigators asking that to see if he should be fired and then also her feeling guilty because like she was distracting the bus driver but also the audience is gonna have different interpretations of that like oh was she like being distracting and impractical or like was he just being really irresponsible for paying attention to this teenage girl (laughs) instead of paying attention to the road and this kind of sets off like the next two and a half hours of the film Uh, where it's kind of like she is processing this trauma without really getting help. 
but not in the sense that the people around her don't care. It's more just that like we get this illustration of how everyone has a lot of busy stuff in their lives. And like kind of the other crucial character in this story is Lisa's mother, who's played by the wonderful J. Smith Cameron, who is uh, an American TV and mostly theatre character actress, who most recently you will have seen on Succession playing Jerry. We did an episode on Succession. We're both huge fans. I am not super familiar with her career. I think a lot of other people will know her from having a supporting role in Rectify. Um, but she is also... Rectify is so fucking good. Everyone should watch Rectify. And she that's how <laughs> that's where I first saw her. And she's in incredible on that show like i just needed to, i just needed to make that clear i um, fully yeah. believe this and if you literally google her it's just like loads of people just being like glowingly being like this woman's a genius and like she's so funny and charming and delightful and like just very emotionally intelligent actor but she she is also married to kenneth lonergan and he you know he wrote this role like somewhat with her in mind obviously and also the character herself is a stage actress. So she's playing a character who has like a lot of similar experience to her. And kind of the central conflict between her and her daughter is that um, early on in the film, Lisa comes to her with this dilemma being like, oh, should I go back to the police and tell them I think this guy ran a red light? And she goes to ask her mother this upsetting question in the middle of the night when her mom is like in bed masturbating so her mom is like not paying attention to this because she's like really you know obviously embarrassed and is like trying to get the conversation over quickly and her mom is just like well you know you should consider that the bus driver has like a job and you don't want him to lose his job because like it's just kind of her like knee-jerk response and that just kind of causes a rift between them for the rest of the film because it feels to Lisa like her mom isn't taking this problem seriously and is giving her the wrong moral advice and being very thoughtless. And then Lisa then just goes on this journey of like trying to push her way through this case and like pursue what really happened at the accident, which sends her on these like bizarre roads. Like she ends up going, you know, to the police to try and change her statement. Um, we are obviously in spoiler territory here if it's like if you're planning to watch this film. And then she like finds, she like contacts the last living relative of this, of this woman, who's this cousin who barely knew her, and finally finds the executor of her will, who's this friend. And she and the friend, you know, decide to pursue a court case about this bus driver. So it's like meandering all over the place. And what it actually obviously about is Lisa trying and failing to engage with her guilt and trauma. And meanwhile, in her personal life, like, she is getting really over emotional and she's also like suddenly becoming more sexually active, which is very typical for trauma and also like subtextually might be because she's kind of connecting the fact that she was flirting with the bus driver a bit to like sexually punish herself as Kenneth Lonergan actually discussed in an interview. I think we're going to quote at some point, but um, she ends up like hooking up with this unbelievably scummy guy called Kieran Culkin, uh, played by Kieran Culkin, who is, obviously an iconic scummy scummy boy actor which was just just amazing and like so upsetting and then like pursuing her horrible teacher Matt Damon who was just like perfectly depicted shall I just go into that a bit because I was just like what a role yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so like Matt Damon is introduced really early in the film and like his role at first is ambiguous enough that it's like you think it might just be like a bit flirty but you're also like well they're not gonna sleep together she she's like wearing this ridiculously short skirt at the beginning of the film and he's being like very slightly like too helpful towards her but definitely within the bounds of him just being like a young like a very like sensitive teacher who wants to help her with problems and they have like a kind of a jokey relationship as some people have with their teachers and then like as the film progresses she is like pursuing him more aggressively until she kind of comes around to his house to talk about her problems and also like they kiss and they have sex And then she like immediately leaves and tries to be really mature about it by being like, oh, you're being so childish. It's just sex. It doesn't matter. Which is like, obviously, no, it's not. It's like this huge abuse of power. Like at that point, it's like, obviously he has already done like a totally scumbag thing by like sleeping with this vulnerable teenager who is his pupil. But the point where he like truly tipped over into pure evil for me was like towards the end, she has an abortion and she then goes kind of to confront him but like he's with another female teacher at the time so 
he she like just goes up to them and is like oh did you know I had an abortion and she's kind of trying to like show him up or get him to respond somehow but he literally just responds like he's a caring teacher and is like oh do you want to talk about it and I'm like oh you cold bastard and he like is perfectly smooth and has like the perfect response to this to just like gaslight her into getting out of that situation and there's just two amazing gaslighting performances from Matt Damon and Kieran Culkin who like you know, nudges her round into blaming herself for like them not using birth control when they have sex. And it's just like, oh, these terrible men taking taking advantage of her during her vulnerable state. I mean, I think what works about those scenes or works so well about them is that I actually don't think that those men are as deliberately manipulative as what you have just described no i mean i actually think that as well right because like she so it's like a situation that is being created where it's like she is pursuing both of them and you actually see their trajectory of the of the decisions that those guys are making it's not like they're going into that situation being like i'm a piranha who's found like a minnow they're like opportunistic and like especially with the teacher she is sort of like maneuvering him and he's obviously like morally in the wrong but like I do still think that like the final scene where she says the abortion, you can kind of see that he's just like made this split second decision to like fully blank her. And it's just like, it's so awful. And he's so terrible. I mean, yeah, like, obviously, yeah, not like defending this man. Clearly, you should not sleep with your teenage students. That is bad. But I think like a more sort of straightforward movie would depict that in such a more cliched yeah like more tragic and more sort of victimized and unless you have the whole picture of like all of her psychological background and like everything that's happening at the same time yes because she really is like coming on to him in a very aggressive way which again does not make what happens acceptable but like from a psychological perspective you completely understand how this guy is like okay well i guess (laughs) I guess I'll just go along with this. And then the scene at the end with the other teacher, like, of course he's not going to be like, oh, let me speak to you in private about your abortion. Because then the female teacher would be like, hmm, (laughs) what the fuck is going on here? And I think the Kieran Culkin character is incredibly well written also, because obviously this guy is bad news. Like, complete scumbag. But he's also quite funny. Yes. And he's not, I mean, it's not like he's malicious in his own head, right? Like, this stuff about the condom is awful, and the, I was watching it just going like, oh, I, I was no, just like, no, don't, no. no. <laughs> but he's quite nice to her when he goes over. It's not like he's, you know, acting in a completely disgusting way, and she initiates it. And you completely get that, like, in his head, he's kind of just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> I guess I'm doing this And his whole personality is he's clearly conceived of himself as like the chillest person ever who doesn't care about anything. Like all of his scenes are just like, I'm so funny and I care about nothing. Because there's this incredible scene, which is maybe the best scene in the movie. Um, Well, maybe the funnest scene in the movie, not the best because there's a lot of intense, intense drama. But like there's this very funny scene that's kind of with the high school theatre group where all the teens are like rehearsing some play and uh the teacher is like look i know that a lot of people in this room have had a lot of drama with each other recently and in my mind i was just thinking man this guy probably gives this speech to every single class every year because it's like a theater class (laughs) and he's like okay we're all gonna bring it in and we're all gonna like air our grievances and they all sit right in a circle and have these hysterical like tearful confessions to each other about all their problems and obviously some of them you have no idea about because it's side characters and then you also have you know Lisa like hysterically crying and apologizing to her male friend who asked her out and she rebuffed him and she's like she feels so bad about it because they were so close and like they're really best friends which like you kind of don't really get the impression of from earlier scenes so that one's quite ambiguous but it's like very intense emotions and then Kieran Culkin is like uh look man I'm just in the band I don't think we really need to cry all this much and it's like yeah of course there's always fucking one That is one of the scenes, the few scenes that was totally cut from the original release and then reinserted. And watching it, you're just like, how could you cut this gem? Like, But there's also like the two scenes that so they cut, funny. according to that blog post, were like really crucial to kind of understanding characterization. Because I feel like if you don't have that scene, it's a lot harder to understand her relationship with those two teenage boys. 
especially yeah. like the one who's the friend who asked her at first because I kind of in those earlier scenes I just assumed that like he was some nerd that she was stringing along so she could copy his homework and it seems like they actually were pretty close friends and then also like yes. the later scene that they cut is literally like the entirety of her having an abortion so otherwise it's very ambiguous when she tells the teacher she has an abortion because maybe she's lying maybe she's just saying that to get a response and like the abortion scene also is a really good kind of conclusion with her and her mother because this whole film is kind of partly about her and her mother having this huge divide between each other and dealing with that divide really poorly while having loads of like conversations where they're trying to communicate and her mother has like only a fraction of her story so she doesn't really know what's going on and then towards the end of the film like obviously her mother is who she goes to first when she needs to get an abortion and her mum takes her and then kind of that sets up the finale of the film where she gets to have this emotional catharsis in like in her mother's arms yeah the stuff with the mom in this movie i think is really amazing because again like she seems to be like quite a good mother but not like mom of the year because those people don't exist yeah. um and this all happens to be happening at a point where, like, she has this big professional thing going on, so she's distracted. The and she's, dad like, is also in, Cal- in the first new relationship since she divorced the girl's father years ago. So she's dating yeah. this character played by Jean Reno. And I was just, like, watching this being like, these people are not very well suited, but they're pursuing it because the guy is really keen on her. And she's like, I guess I'll give it a go. <laughs> like... <laughs> I will say, Jean Reno appears to be playing a Colombian man. He is. Movie, I was watching this thing like, I was like, Ramon, what's like his family is from what? South America. What's happening here? But like, for some reason, no explanation. Film, Jean Reno is not French. <laughs> but uh, you completely get why the mother is kind of distracted. And the dad is out in California and is clearly just like, not great. Played by Kenneth Lonergan, incidentally. Yeah, I did not know that until afterwards. And I was like, oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. But of course, Lisa idolizes her father. And is like constantly trying to get sort of attention from him over the phone. Classic divorced child situation. And watching this was really interesting for me. And I think I, I feel like I remember having this reaction the first time too. But it was especially acute watching it as an adult. Like, I find Lisa very annoying watching this movie not unsympathetic but like definitely irritating yeah in a way (laughs) yeah fucking irritating like she's a like absolute drama queen ultimate teenager (laughs) and like the boy who asks her out who she's not interested in who's played um we should say by john gallagher jr whom i love who it doesn't have a very big part in this movie but is really good basically every single actor in this film is like a famous person at least two movie people like literally it's unbelievable the, fact, the like, fact that Kristen Ritter is in this film for one second she's not got any lines she's like help and I was like I guess they must have like cut a scene where maybe she had one line but she's like helping her try on a jacket as a sales girl and I was like it's Kristen Ritter it was not long ago <laughs> well it was yeah because <laughs> this was years before she was on Breaking Bad even but like Rosemary DeWitt plays Mark Ruffalo's wife in the one scene where um, Lisa goes out to talk to them. Her best friends, played by Alan Cummings' daughter from The Good Wife. Hilarious comedy actor. Who is also a big theater person in New York. Like, just base... Virtually everyone who has an even small part in this movie is, like, a a someone if you go to plays in New York or, like, watch indie movies or of any kind. And some of them weren't really someone's yet, but like clearly whoever was in charge of casting this movie was smart. But uh, like she clearly isn't interested in this sort of nerdy friend, which is fine. You don't have to go out with every boy who asks you out. But she really dicks him around in a way that's like pretty excruciating to watch. Like she makes out with him randomly at a party when she's drunk, which of course gets his hopes up again. And like, it's not going to happen. And you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, no, no, no. Um, And she's really awful to her mother, which now is like, obviously I don't have children, but like as an adult person watching it, I'm just like, oh, you're being so cruel to your mom. (laughs) But I think like, again, more kind of simplistic film would depict this in such a just black and white way, right? Like either it would really take the side of the teenager and like, the mom wouldn't understand her. Even Lady Bird, which has an amazing mother-daughter relationship, like it's so from the point of view of the of 
labored, which is fine. Like, that's just what that movie is doing. But this film somehow pulls off, like, really putting you in the head of both the mother and the child in a very profound way. And you get why the communication isn't working. And it feels unfair from from Lisa to be sort of not telling her mother what's going on and like her, she keeps saying to people like oh, my mother doesn't care my mother doesn't listen to me but like she hasn't told her mother and her mom what- is also like please my mom, her mother is like will you please take me to like this court case so you can explain to me what's happening and she's like you don't care um but there was right. this thing that like jay smith cameron the mother actress said in this interview that i just thought was great was um she was kind of talking about how lisa like hates her mother's career as an actress and thinks she's just really frivolous and this whole thing is pointless and like phrases this in conversation uh, to other people in a way that makes her mother sound more frivolous. So like when she's talking to the friend of the dead women, she's kind of like, oh, my mom's just focusing on a play right now. And obviously this makes it sound like her mom is just this airhead who doesn't care about this like person's death. But like the thing that J. Smith Cameron pointed out was like, she was like, this play is like this woman's livelihood. Like she has two kids to support. It's a really difficult job to be working as like an off-Broadway actress in in, in, in New York. And um, so she's like, it's workplace stress. And it's not like she's constantly talking and thinking about this to the detriment of everything else. It's this just that like, she's not fully cognizant of all the problems her daughter has. So, you know, communication. Yeah, there's a there's a great line too when the slimy Karen Hilkin character has come over to their apartment to have sex. The mom is either at the play or on a date. He's like, oh, look at this bookshelf full of books because of course he's a cool teen. And Lisa's just like, oh, my mom hasn't read any of those. In this, like, she just has to, he doesn't give a shit about her mother. Like, that doesn't matter. But she just just compulsively needs to sort of get this out. And, again, like, I I find the character quite grating. But that's what teenagers are like often. And you also completely understand psychologically where she's coming from, even though it can be frustrating. Because she has had an experience that clearly was very traumatic. Like, the scene as you said before, where this bus accident happens is incredibly well done. Allison Janney is playing this woman who dies. She's only on screen for a couple of minutes, but it was such smart casting to have her play that role because you completely feel like you know who this woman is, even though she's only there for a couple minutes. And so obviously this has been really scary and affecting for Lisa, but she doesn't like, she's not old enough or mature enough to grasp that even though it was scary and traumatic for her, it's not primarily her problem. Like, the woman who was Alison Janney's best friend, who's played by Jeannie Berlin, who's great in the movie, yes, she didn't actually witness it, but it's obviously so much worse for her because her best friend just died, right? And, like, Lisa can't put that together in her head because, like, she's just so sort of tunnel-visioned about her own experience And yet she's sort of desperately trying to get other people to sort of understand her. I think that character is amazing, even if she sort of drives me nuts. But the sort of philosophical stuff in the movie is really dense and interesting, too. Again, without being sort of pretentious. In the sense that she becomes really obsessed with sort of punishing this man. Right? And you learn that he's had a couple accidents before. So like, yes, perhaps he should not be driving the bus anymore. Like, that does seem like something that might be, might be good. Yeah, that's something that also like when we find that out, it kind of made me wonder about his wife. Because at one point, like Lisa goes to confront him at his house and his wife's there. And I'm like, well, obviously his wife is going to be like protective of him and also weirded out. But I'm like, so his wife must know that he's like killed or maimed multiple people at work. And she's like, I guess you should keep working. Like, (laughs) I I don't think the implication is that he's killed other people. I think it's that the other accidents were minor and that then this accident was major. And so like they should have pulled him off because there were, they should have seen that this was coming. I think it's what the lawyer says. And like they're sort of escalated up right to one where he finally really fucked up, which I also think is smart writing, right? Because if this guy were like completely innocent up until this point, and then she distracted him, there would be more of an argument for like, well, just let him keep his job. But it forces you to be like, well, actually, maybe he shouldn't keep his job. But like, her desperate desire to like, punish this person is not satisfying to her, nor does it work, right? And the idea that like, these things get sort of rectified by society, these tragic events, with cash settlements, 
like she just finds that so grotesque and stupid and then of course the family of this woman who died is like yes please give us yeah there's because it's like this person who had like no relationship with this dead woman is suddenly showing up being like oh i can get like a free hundred three hundred and fifty thousand dollars like of course it's just like really perverse and of course it's like you cannot like you can't there's no solution to grief and guilt like it's not something you can do something to get rid of and she's just like convinced it is because you know i mean also like at any age you can be convinced of that but also very much she's 17 so (laughs) yes exactly and something about this sort of like questing desperate desire for like restitution and like an answer felt again so much like the post 9-11 america to me right like again it's not like this movie is an allegory for what was happening but like they have all these arguments in her history class about the situation in the middle east that were literally, I was literally just like, yes, there's like, like teenage, teenagers back. are having like these screaming debates. And there's this one girl in her class who has her family is Syrian. And she obviously is like talking about how the racism that like Arab Americans are experiencing. And she and Lisa are getting into all these arguments. Um, and also, there's like arguments about Israel and anti Semitism, which like then bleed over into conversations with her mother. And like a Jewish friend and her mother's new boyfriend who seems like he may or may not be anti-Semitic. And it's like, oh, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. <laughs> Which also is one of those things where it's like, if it's a typical teen drama slash coming of age drama, you don't get all this peripheral stuff as well. And partly the reason why is because those films aren't three hours long. <laughs> yes. But all those scenes add to the movie so much in terms of like giving you some context for what her normal life is like. And for what her personality is like, because she's so aggressive in those debates, sometimes in a way that feels like it's too much. And sometimes in a way that's just like, ah, yes, I too (laughs) argued a lot in class in high school. I mean, those specific arguments about all that political stuff, I was like, oh, right, I was literally in high school at exactly this time. And we were all having these like furious arguments about exactly these topics at this time. It felt like almost documentary style writing about that stuff like clearly he knew what he was doing but there's no solution to any of those problems because there isn't in real life either right and the movie doesn't attempt to do that it just uses that stuff as like backdrop for the emotional story but i don't think it's really backdrop i think it's all tied together and similarly there was a great little bit in the bright wall dark room interview with him about this movie where they're talking about um, a scene with the English teacher who's played by Matthew Broderick, who is so funny in this movie. Apparently Kenneth Lonergan's best friend since they were like 15, which I did not know. Yeah, I was Um, like reading these interviews being like, they're besties and like Matthew Broderick lent him a million dollars to finish the film or something. (laughs) Well, apparently Matthew Broderick's mother, who was a painter, was like the most influential person in Kenneth Lonergan's life, period, which is very heartwarming. But uh In this movie, Matthew Broderick plays this very, like, fussy English teacher. There's a great little bit. They're reading King Lear. And there's a great little bit where he's assigning parts to everyone in the room to read out loud in a scene. And he's like, well, I guess that leaves me with King Lear again. And you're just like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, (laughs) this is unbearable. And also, it's like, or Matthew Broderick was like, oh, you base this on, like, our history teacher was like, you remember he was diabetic. So I need to be drinking an orange juice and having a sandwich in the class for it to be fully authentic. So it's like painstakingly recreating reality. And like, there's this scene where Lisa and her little friend played by the girl from The Good Wife are like getting high in the park. And like Matthew Broderick comes along and is like, you can't be smoking a J here. And it's like, they're all laughing at him saying smoking a J. <laughs> it's perfect. But, like, there's a bit where they're um, arguing about a a line in King Lear. I don't have the exact quote, uh, but in this interview, um, Chad Perman, who's doing the interview, says uh, they're reading the passage about what our lives must seem like to the gods. And it's like, to the gods, we must be as, like, flies or something. And... There's a, like, stoner kid in the class who's just, like, I think what Shakespeare's really saying is that, like, we can't possibly understand how unbelievably huge the consciousness of the gods is. And Matthew Broderick's like, that is not what Shakespeare is saying. (laughs) And the kid will not let it go. It's very funny. But obviously, like, the point of the line is that life is cruel and, you know, there's nobody watching out for you. And 
it reflects the bigger themes in the movie. And Kenneth Lonergan's like, wow, I never realized that. I literally just wrote that from like an argument that everyone that we had in class at school. Haven't we all been there? (laughs) Yes. And a lot of what he said in this interview that was so interesting and like definitely mirrors my experience of writing too, not that I'm Kenneth Lonergan, is like a lot of the stuff that I sort of see in this movie and experience is really deliberate thematic writing was not on purpose and that he kind of all just came out. And I think, you know, especially if you're someone as talented as he is, like things just kind of happen and it's not completely accidental. It's like some part of your brain is kind of making something happen, but you're not necessarily thinking about it. So like there's in no interview I found, was there any discussion of like the political subtext that we've been discussing? And so I would be so curious to know whether that actually was on purpose or whether it was just that like at the time when he was writing this, that was so in the air. But every scene in the movie feels so intentional to me. And like, it's all sort of informing every other piece of the movie. And obviously he spent years and years fighting over keeping all of these little bits and pieces in the film. So we obviously really cared about it being exactly in this form. But I feel like it seems to me reading some of these interviews that there's a degree of instinctiveness to that as opposed to like, ah, yes, every little piece is like a part of my grand plan that I have worked out. But it is a grand plan when you watch it. Like it all feels like it's playing into something, which as a viewer is obviously very rewarding. Do you want to add anything on that, or should we talk about the music? Uh, let's talk about the music. I feel like you should... I'm sure you have things to say about the use of music in this film, so... Um, I actually d- don't really. <laughs> like, I often thought, like, oh, great music choice there. <laughs> but um, the most vital scene is just, like, at the end, obviously, which is very clean cut, where there's there's a couple of times during the film where they kind of discuss opera or classical music, because they're, you know, they're sort of... New York artistic liberal family so obviously she like listens to classical music and like her mother goes on a date to the opera with her new boyfriend Jean Renault and she's like a bit underwhelmed because uh, she's like is the opera pretentious but then like the final scene of the movie is after Lisa has gone through all of this trauma and her mother's boyfriend has actually died very suddenly leaving <laughs> these opera tickets behind and clearly her mom is like not enormously cut up about this like she's like well it's very sad that my boyfriend's dead but also like she wasn't in love with him and it was a bit awkward and she kind of broken up with him a little bit so she uses these tickets and they both go to the opera and Lisa just like just starts crying she just like feels it so much she just starts crying and it's just like crying not loudly but like very obviously in the middle of this opera and being embraced by her mother and it's this really beautiful scene and like, I'm not familiar with the opera they used, which was the Tales of Hoffman, but I think it, it doesn't really matter. Like, it's a very famous duet that you will definitely have recognized if you hear it um, between two women. So it's kind of like it's mirroring the fact that it's two women, obviously, on screen. But something I just really liked about that final scene is that it's kind of showing that, like, the the quality and tone of a piece of art isn't necessarily super relevant to, like, the reaction you personally have to it, because not only earlier on in the film has Lisa said that she's just not super into opera, but also the way that this opera is kind of portrayed is like a lot of the experience they're having is just the experience of being at the opera rather than the experience of like liking or caring about the music itself. Cause it's all about the oppressiveness of this beautiful opera house and like the experience of wearing this amazing formal wear, which is very different from like the kind of mid two thousands teenage girl clothes she's usually wearing and the experience of being in the middle of the crowd and all of this stuff. And even like the cinematography, because obviously in a film, which is mostly set in like New York apartments, there's not a lot of like wide shots, but also the performance itself is this very like traditional, not particularly like artistically ambitious style of opera. So you have this like very posed woman wearing historical outfit and like all this very intense stage makeup, like singing this very classical style of music. And it's not one of these kind of performances where they're trying to make it seem modern or accessible or experimental. It's very, like it, it does fit in with the conversation that her mother and her boyfriend were having about opera being like pretentious (laughs) and it doesn't matter because like she's in the perfect mindset to just experience this like gorgeous piece of music and have it just act as the catalyst for her to have this big emotional breakthrough and I think that was kind of the 
the thing that I found interesting about the way they portrayed that in the final scene. Yeah, I think that last scene is just incredible. It ends so perfectly. Like, literally the last shots are just done so perfectly. It, there's no extra fluff. After a movie that's been really long, not extraneously long, but, like, it's long, it's very long, and then all of a sudden <laughs> the movie is just, like, a couple, like, crisp shots done. I am curious to know how many, if any, of our listeners do sit down and watch this movie, which we have now described as three hours long and quite upsetting after listening to us talk. Here's hoping. People people often do. <laughs> yes. I mean, I find this... It's definitely stressful. The scenes with the Matt Damon character were the most, like, excruciating to me. I literally was, like, had, had taken my glasses off and was, like, watching through my fingers <laughs> at, like, the blurry screen. I was just like, this is horrible. I can't take this. More out of, like, just embarrassment factor than anything, right? Like, she is behaving in a way that you're like oh god <laughs> like no but not that it's not emotionally affecting because it definitely is but like Manchester by the Sea I find way more so but that movie is like being put through a l- literal like meat grinder I mean it's just you're being pummeled I mean also like I would have liked to have seen this in theaters because it's like with Manchester by the Sea I would never have got through that film at home but like watching it in theaters where you're nailed to the sea it was amazing yeah. whereas with this film I was like this is three hours long and in the middle I took a break to bake my housemate's birthday cake so you know. I did watch this all in a row I mean I think I went to the bathroom or something but like I, I just watched it I didn't look at my phone or anything and I would recommend attempting to do that if you can. If you have the willpower and <laughs> the attention span it is you don't so have to bake a cake. <laughs> I wish I were in the theater seeing it, although obviously I saw the, you know, other version in the theater because it is such a sort of ambitious cinematic thing. I mean, I prefer Manchester by the Sea, as I said, and I I find that more kind of viscerally, emotionally affecting, but this I find a lot more ambitious in terms of, like, scale, obviously. It is, as we keep saying, very long, but also just, like, the amount of information that he's trying to sort of cram into this thing the volume of ideas, the sort of storytelling technique is so different from the other movies that he's made. He says in this interview that he wasn't consciously thinking about Robert Altman, but like it feels Oh yeah, very especially Altman-y. all the kind of like talking over each other. Yeah. I mean he the distinction he draws, which makes sense, is that Altman was very much like, we'll just say whatever you want. And they would just change stuff up all the time. There was a lot of improvisation and he is not like he that is at like, all. He is like, learn all of your fucking lines. <laughs> yes, and like, you're gonna gasp at the moment where I tell you to gasp and like say, uh, where I tell you to say, uh. But the effect is still, when you're watching, still feels kind of Altman-y because of the way the sound mix works and because you have all these different characters, um, although there obviously is a central figure. And I just respect so much the effort to do this huge thing. And Anna Paquin, I now feel like so cheated on her behalf that this is like not, because obviously everyone like knows who she is, but it's like the fact that this is not like her big role. (laughs) I mean, the fact that she was on True Blood for all those years, grim. I'm sure she made a fuck ton of money and she met her husband. So like, I'm sure there are happy memories for her, but like that was a long time of being on a show that, you know. Yeah, because that is not a show that needed good actors. (laughs) No. But yeah, I mean... You've never seen The Piano, but she's like 10 years old in that and won an Oscar. So she's been good for some time. Pretty remarkable ensemble. So uh, yeah, we we recommend this film, obviously, if you want to really, you know, chew on something for a few hours. So for uh, Naman, or Naman, I'm sorry if we, you know, are mispronouncing your name, but uh, happy birthday. I know it's the be around a month late our schedule was booked but uh hopefully you've enjoyed this episode uh thank you so much uh to you guys for prompting me to rewatch this and for gav to watch it for the first time yeah. it was a true pleasure and i've just been like binging 2020 movies frantically to try to catch up uh, many of which are great but it was a it was nice to stop that for an evening and just be like i'm going to bask in an excellent film that has nothing to do with my rankings of the new movies so that was that was good next week is christmas so for christmas we will be watching not a christmas movie but a movie that you know makes us feel good yes a nostalgic family movie i don't know if i call it a family movie exactly i did not watch it i guess i watched it with my mother recently it's a um, movie about family (laughs) 
That is that is true. Yes. If you are not familiar, Philadelphia Story is a romantic comedy from 1940, starring Catherine uh, Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart, all in the same film. One of the best movies ever made, in my opinion. Certainly one of the best romantic comedies ever made. It features the best scene with drunk characters in a movie that has ever been filmed. <laughs> No matter how many times I watch this movie, I wind up laughing like an actual maniac during the scene I'm thinking about. Just sublime. Yeah, it's it's so good. It's so comforting. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should watch it. It will make you feel good. Um, if you have seen it, hopefully you love it like we do and will enjoy listening to us talk about it. So um, I wanted to do a sort of classic movie for Christmas time. And even though this isn't a Christmas film, it felt, felt festive in some way. I don't know. The big parties, fancy dresses hot actors like what more can you really ask for what from more cinema? Can you really I don't know. Ask for? and by the time this goes up we either should have our mailbag episode up on our patreon or it should be up shortly so um if you want to listen to us talk about the hbo max warner's disney nightmare situation and other you know less depressing stuff that will be available to you there are questions that are not to do with that either but if you want to listen to us talk about business in hollywood we will be doing that also um i'm i engineered this so that we could talk about this on the podcast so you know i i confess it but yeah that will be on our patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast gabia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I recently released my magnum opus, which is a 27-minute video about the history of the bat suit. Go watch it. <laughs> Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at letter and letterboxed at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvested pod. Our Tumblr is overinvested podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.